welcome to PageCast, a book-centered podcast series brought to you by Jonathan Ball Publishers. In this episode, Sean Duvall, News24 Books Editor, interviews South African writer Johnny Steinberg about his latest book, Winnie and Nelson, Portrait of a Marriage. Steinberg's captivating book delves into the marriage between Nelson Mandela and Winnie Madigizela Mandela. Despite Mandela's years in prison, his love for Winnie only grew stronger. In his letters, he idolized her, seeing her as a timeless figure of youth and romantic love. However, Winnie, who stood as his political equal, grew apart from his political beliefs. Winnie and Nelson is a modern epic that demonstrates how the struggle within a marriage can reverberate throughout an entire nation. Steinberg's political and tender emotional insight reveals the lengths to which these inseparable leaders would go for each other, as well as the boundaries they set. They understood that their union was not just a marriage, but a struggle to shape anti-apartheid policies. Thank you for listening and enjoy this episode of PageCast. Hi, I'm Sean Duval. I'm the books editor of News24. And I'm speaking to Johnny Steinberg, who's the author of our first News24 book of the month. His book is Winnie and Nelson, Portrait of a Marriage, which is about Nelson Mandela and Winnie Matikizela's marriage um, and, of course, their lives. I'm very pleased to be talking to Johnny. I think, Johnny, this book is a major achievement. I wouldn't have thought that there was much new to be winkled out of the story of Nelson Mandela, but... Uh, you did it. I mean, Winnie, perhaps there's more that hasn't been dealt with in what's been written already about her, partly, I think, because people possibly didn't want to go there, but you went there. And I think you've done it with a, a great deal of sympathy for them, a great deal of understanding for the immense difficulties that they faced in their lives. You're known for um, your work in sort of long-form journalism, you might call it book-length journalism, looking at contemporary events in South Africa. This book is more of historical, and it goes much further back into South African history. But how did you come to this project? How did you come to this story? What made you want to write about this famous and very public marriage, a marriage that indeed had an impact on South Africa's history? Thanks, Sean. You know, there were so many reasons. Let me just give a, a couple. You know, one is that there obviously is a great deal written on Nelson Mandela, but I think that while he was alive, it wasn't possible really to write about him as a rounded human being. To do so would have been too contentious to to speak to his flaws, to his frailties, to the dark parts of him, would have correctly been perceived as an assault on him and assault on the South African national project. And for all that's been written on him, I think we're living in a new time now. And, and it's possible to write about him in a way that wasn't before. Uh, and that was one of my motivations. It was to, you know, I sat down and went through the major biographies and I thought that they're off their time and we're in a new time and there's, there's new stuff to say. And, and at the beginning, I wanted to write a book on him. And very soon into the research, I, I discovered something startling, which is not just that as the years went by in prison, he grew more and more in love with Winnie. But he did so in a quite a disturbing way. He he was in love in the way that a long-term prisoner is in love. You know, when you are locked away from your life, you lose track of very simple things like the arc of time. When you love somebody and you're not with them, you're not seeing them day by day, in a very profound sense, you lose a sense of who they are. And you read these very passionate letters that he's writing to Winnie. 
And you see that there's a very basic confusion that in the same letter, she'll be a 19-year-old beauty he's just met. And a few paragraphs later, she's 55 years old and, and thinking of old age. And these are all scrambled. And I thought, you know, this woman has become the center of this man's identity and he's actually lost a sense of who she is. And wow, is there a story in that? So I switched from writing a book about Nelson Mandela to this marriage. I very much like the quote on the book from Jacob Lamini because he says that, you know, you've managed to portray Nelson and Winnie both as these larger than life characters, but also sort of all too human. And one gets a sense of them in the book. I mean, extraordinarily rich vein of storytelling that I think you've found there or that you've constructed. You know, one gets a sense of them almost as sort of characters in a Greek tragedy, you know, the Agamemnon and Clytemnestra, or, but also their, their intense humanness, one of the great achievements of the book. I think it also, the key differences between them emerge in the way that they sort of deal with themselves and their lives and the, the issue of sort of self-invention that I want to come to a little bit later. You know, Nelson Mandela often said, you know, I'm not a saint. Don't treat me like a saint. You know, I have feet of clay. Whereas you suspect that Winnie, even if pressed, would probably not even admit that she had feet. You know, she you, you can't see one instance where she admits she's wrong. You know, I'm sure you know Shireen Hassim's essay where she talks about Winnie's refusal to apologize at the TRC in the in the Stompy case. Absolute refusal to apologize, to admit that anything that she did anything wrong. So I wondered how you the differential in the way that you would approach those two characters and the way that they present themselves, the way they tell their stories, the way they justify their actions. I think you've put your finger on something really important. What they have in common is that they both self-consciously tried to make myths of both themselves and their marriage. They they knew that they were doing that. It was a political strategy. They both knew that they were geniuses at doing that and could, and they succeeded immensely. A key, key difference which you've put your finger on is Nelson Mandela never for a moment confused himself with the myth of himself that he created. He absolutely, in his depths, understood that they were separate. And he knew that however successful he was at a myth, however much of a global figure he became, it could never substitute for personal happiness, which he felt that he didn't have. Winnie, I think in a very profound sense, believed that she was the myth. You know, from very early on, she had a very strangely aristocratic sense of politics from very early on, from the 60s. She believed that because she had married Nelson Mandela, she she embodied South Africa. She embodied Black South Africa. She was its leader, and quite often confused the two. She would. There was a point in in nineteen eighties where she was talking to an interviewer, talking about her relationship with a policeman who tortured her, Tiana Swanepoel, and and said he was my teacher. I learned to hate from him. I, I felt his hate and I hated him back. And he he made me what I am. And then in the next breath, she's saying, therefore. Only a, a violent revolution, only a mass armed insurrection can end apartheid. So she'd made the switch from what was happening personally to her to what was happening to an entire nation. And, and that is a key difference between Nelson and Winnie Mandela. They were both conscious mythologizers, but, but their relation to their myths was profoundly different. It's interesting what you say about Winnie's sense of herself as a, I suppose, a kind of princess, because you know, I remember it was fairly late in her life, I suppose. I was in the Hyatt in Rosebank and I had met, I think it was Max Dupree for coffee to talk about his his latest book. And while we were sitting there in the chairs in the sort of foyer restaurant coffee area, um, there was a great commotion at the at the front doors and in swept two large black Mercedes Benzes pulled up outside. And there was a commotion and Winnie got out, accompanied by 
four bodyguards and his guys in like black outfits and things, another three or four sort of assistants or a bit of an entourage. And she sort of swept in and everything came to a halt. And she went down the corridor. Max and I were sort of sitting, my God, you know. And then I asked around later on and I was told she came to have her nails done. In fairness to her, they were both like that. Both understood that their political power came with, with performance. That's what it was about. And so neither of them was ever prepared to enter a room without it being the major thing happening in the room. That is, that is who they both were from very, very early. That is who Nelson Mandela was from the late 1940s onwards. You know, we only know who he is today because he was like that. He intuitively understood that when he entered a room, the temperature changed. He used that very, very skillfully and very dexterously. He reinvented himself again and again in the 1950s and the 60s, and, and she did as well. And, and that's what they had in common. They were, they were not just very, very charismatic people. They used that charisma like clay. They used it for political purposes and for a range of political purposes over the years. That scene with Winnie... It doesn't surprise me. It's, it seems like that are true of both of them from when they were young until when they were old. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole issue of self-invention and self-mythologization is, is very interesting. I mean, I, I started a PhD at the Universität von Amsterdam, which is now on hold, but it was partly about, well, mostly about autobiography written in South Africa since liberation. And one of the key texts there is obviously Long Walk to Freedom. That chapter is called, as it stands, is called Performing Authenticity. And I pick on this moment when Nelson Mandela appeared, his, first, his appearance at the trial when he was tried for, you know, for illegally leaving the country. Between the treason trial and the, then he'd been on the run and then later the, the Rivonia trial, you know, he appeared in the famous Karos in the garb of, of a Tembu royal. And of course, you know, Winnie was also, you know, had her special trial drag on as well to, you know, her, her appearance and so forth were was so important in that context. And then into the treason trial, a lot of attention came their way because of that. And yet there's an episode which I'm never quite sure where to place in the narrative because the accounts of it are not consistent. But you point out that in your book that Nelson seems to have said that this intervention, this intervention, his dressing up as the, as the Tembu prince, which he was a Tembu prince, you know, was a sort of perhaps a bit of a last minute idea. But sometime before that, when he was still on the run, and he was staying in Wolfie Kadesh's flat, he had a picture of himself taken with some kind of bead necklace thing and what looked like a sort of traditional blanket around him, but it's actually an old bedspread or something from Wolfie's flat. That image appeared on our currency at one time. It's interesting because it speaks to me about the self-invention up to and including the point of self-presentation to the world, the, the very clothes that he was wearing, very aware of himself as a, as a celebrity, very much using that, but also it seemed to me using whatever he could get his hands on to sort of play this role and to plan in a way this kind of intervention that depended so much on what he was wearing. I mean, obviously it dovetailed with what he was going to say in the trial, which was, you know, as you said, kind of stolen from Sabukwe about, you know, I'm a black man in a white man's court and this is unjust. But it does seem to me that he was he was kind of working on that uh, quite consistently, using whatever he came to hand. Well, yes. I mean, on the on the one hand, he was he was using whatever came to hand. On the other, none of his performances and none of Winnie's performances, for that matter, were were unthought through or arbitrary. They were both always, that without exception, 
had deep political purpose. So if you look at the, the extraordinary rate at which he was reinventing himself at that time, when he first appeared in public consciousness, it was as a lawyer in a very expensive tailored suit and driving a flashy car. And that wasn't frivolity. That was very, very serious. That was saying, I'm a very serious black political figure and I also have glamour. The meaning that exuded was enormously powerful. You know, in the next stage, in, in the episode you're talking about in court, he understood that the ANC's relationship with uh, the Communist Party, with white people and Indians, was damaging it in Africa, and he needed very quickly to make an Africanist turn. And that performance was part of it. It was it was very, very considered. You know, for the the man, the, the dapper lawyer in the in the tailored suit to suddenly become an an African man wearing in an improvised way, the, the dress of his ancestors. That, that's a very stark and quick transition and, and a thought through transition. And then after that, he changed again. When he went underground, he, he developed a, a Fidel Castro look, he grew a beard. He stopped passing his hair. He wore trench coats. These can seem frivolous because they, because the, the changes are so quick and the identities he's adopting are, are moving, but they're strategized. And, and exactly the same for Winnie. If you look at what she is wearing through the, the fifties and, and the sixties, it's, it's changing quite dramatically and it's, it's giving different messages at different times, um, reading a political situation. And she was very stylish. I mean, she was very conscious of her, of her glamour. She was, it was obviously very thought through. You know, you've got to wonder when she was exiled to Brantford, how many suitcases of clothes she took with her. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I think when he arrived in Johannesburg at the age of 16, she'd had a, a very unusual childhood. In her childhood, gender roles had been scrambled and she'd occupied every position in that family, including the prodigal son. You know, she was she was the child who went off to tertiary education. She was the child most invested in. That was never meant to be the role of a daughter. It just turned out that way. And by the time she got to Johannesburg, she did not feel that it, she should be excluded from any sphere, including public office power. And she felt that the fact that she was a woman should not prevent her from, from getting there. And yet she was a woman and it did prevent her from getting there. She had to use the resources she had at her disposal. And, and, and one of them was her beauty and her sexuality. And at the beginning, those things were dangerous to her. At high school, her beauty really allowed powerful men to nearly to destroy her. She had to very, very quickly learn how to to use the sexuality she exuded um, as a source of power rather than as vulnerability. And, and she did that very quickly, very smartly and to great effect. And, and the fact that she did it at that age so quickly is is remarkable. So the question of what she was wearing and what she was looking like is probably the most serious matter about her at that time. She had to, w what she looked like was, was the deepest, most important question. It's how she moved around in the world. It's how she escalated her own power in a, in a misogynist world. And I note as well that you carry the, the the theme of the the roles that Nelson in particular played. What you quote from Barbara Masekela talking about the time that she was uh, running his his office this after you come out of jail, obviously, and the fact that she talks about the women in this uh, in his office uh, running his agenda and so forth. You know, they could see him transforming himself into. He was, a, he was a consummate actor, and they could see him transforming himself into this character, Nelson Mandela, the great reconciler, the father of the nation. It was, a, it was a role that he played, and I mean, he played it superbly, obviously, I mean, to, to the benefit of all of South Africa, but it was nonetheless a role. 
Absolutely. And Barbara Maskella was so well placed to see that because as his chief of staff in the early 1990s, she was with him literally 16 hours a day. And more than that, the two of them drew close and this very defended man really allowed her in, allowed her to see some of his vulnerability. It, it's something that I think he only allowed with, with, with women and, and very particular women. He, he was very reluctant to show any vulnerability to a man. And so she was with this man all the time and, and his defenses were down. She could see something of what was going on in his heart. And what she saw was a very sad, very angry, very wounded man who had a capacity to perform on the public stage like nobody else she knew. And she watched these transformations happening before her eyes. She saw, a, you know, she spoke about this grim stillness that would come over him, this deep, deep, deep sadness. And then it would be turned off and he'd prepare himself for the public stage and put on a consummate performance. So her point of view is for a biographer like me is just invaluable. She, you know, she was a, she was a witness to something very important. It seems extraordinary to me that in in what she says and, and her take on um, Nelson Mandela at that point in his life, that he spoke of, I think it's Masekela talks about this, that he spoke of the years in jail, the 27 years, as wasted time, and that he took it on himself. He took the blame for that in a way, that he said, I have wasted those years. I mean, is that not an extraordinary thing? I, I'm trying to understand how he conceptualized that. Well, I think what's going on there is, is complicated. I, I, I think that he, this may sound paradoxical, but he both blames himself and he blames the apartheid state. And, and I think the fact that he blames the apartheid state is very, very important. You know, he, he was a reconciler because he believed that, that a, a posture of reconciliation was necessary to, to avoid, not just to avoid civil war, but to build a future country that was inhabitable by its people. But I don't think that what he felt in his depths was reconciliation. He he was very, very angry. You know, in the 1950s, he was a rambunctious, playful man who lived, you know, who lived to the nth degree. And that's what was taken away with him, uh, from him, you know, for those 27 years. And he, he absolutely knew that it had killed a spirit inside him. Those were 27 years that were never recoverable. They were gone. And he spoke of his life as a tragedy. And he understood that his enemy had made that tragedy and, and there were moments where he could not hide his anger. At the same time, he also did blame himself because, you know, shift and look at him in the 50s from another angle. And he's this wild, crazy man living this adrenaline-filled life, you know, filled with danger and excitement and a great deal of extramarital sex and neglected his family terribly. And in jail, he watches his children and many of them are ruins. They're just not getting on their feet and living sort of adult life that he can take pride in. And it, it destroys him. And he thinks, I did this to these people. It was, it was because of the life that I lived that, that they're this way. And I must try to make amends. And what's heartbreaking is he tries to make amends in, in the clumsiest and most inadequate ways. He, he does so as a, as a stiff patriarch saying, I broke this, I will fix it. But, but you, you can't fix a human being as if they're a machine. And so you watch this man feeling terrible remorse, terrible guilt, trying to make right. But he does so in, I mean, to put it bluntly, in such unintelligent ways. And so you have this person operating on the political stage with remarkable intelligence, extraordinary intelligence and subtlety. And this very same person is desperately trying to uh, redeem his children, but, but is going about it in a way that can't possibly work. Yeah, it's 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 very sad that, and it's very interesting to see the see it playing out in in those situations with his children. 
and at the same time, you know, you know, taking in at least one of his grandchildren to live with him and so forth, trying to sort of reconstruct the sense of family around him. But I wondered, do you think that given what you've written, and I mean, I think you've done it with an extraordinary amount of sensitivity, but I suspect that speaking about extramarital affairs on both of their parts and speaking about, for instance, Winnie consorting with some very dubious characters from very soon after Nelson Mandela went into jail. You know, the Richardson thing and the Stompy thing uh, in the 80s was not the first instance of her getting tangled up with, you know, some dodgy and violent compromised characters. Do you think that you are going to get a lot of pushback, a lot of condemnation from the, the sort of Julius Malema kind of people who would argue that you are kind of doing the work of Stratcon? Um, I mean, I'm sure there'll be pushback, but, but if, if anybody says I'm doing the work of Stratcom, I, th I think they've misunderstood what's going on here. <laughs> this, I, this is a, I mean, this is a book written from the deepest, deepest sympathy for both of them. I mean, what I really, really hope to do, and, 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 and I, I hope that I have done it is to show that you, you can both preserve the myths of these people. You can, you can show how crucially important, even sacred, these myths are, and yet also show that they were real human beings. The, the, the two are, are not in contradiction. And if anybody understood that, it was, it was Nelson Mandela. He, he knew that the myth of himself was, was enormously successful, uh, but he also knew that he was deeply flawed. And in, in a sense, I've tried to follow his lead there, um, tried to take that insight. Tell me a little about working with the sources that you had at your disposal. You've got textual sources there. You've got interviews that you conducted with people going back into their memories many, many years ago. You've also got things like the um, transcription of the conversations between Winnie and Nelson when he was in jail, which illuminates something very difficult in a way in their, in their relationship. And I think you note in the text that there's some discomfort in feeling that you're eavesdropping on, on this conversation. You, know, you feel a bit like one of the prison warders who were actually detailed to eavesdrop and to take notes and to record and so forth. So tell me a little bit about, about negotiating that in your dealing with the, with the sort of the sources that you had at your disposal. So, I mean, there were, there were a range of sources. There were all sorts of it, but let me focus on, on the ones that you've just alluded to. Kirby Kutsia became the Minister of Justice and Prisons in 1980, and the moment he did so, he ordered his staff to bug every single conversation Mandela had with a visitor. And each of those sound recordings was either transcribed um, into text or a summary was made in Afrikaans of, of all of those conversations. You know, by the time Mandela was freed, there were thousands of pages of these of these transcripts and summaries. When Kutsia left office in 1994, he took all of this, all of these documents with him. He essentially stole them. They, they belonged to the state. He took them home and they lay in his home, um, for nearly 20 years until his wife died. I think she died in 2010. And at that point, his, the instructions in his will said that all his papers should be deposited at the, um, archive for contemporary affairs in Bloemfontein and the University of the Free State. So that's where these transcripts went. In the course of writing this book, I discovered that these transcripts existed and where they were. And I made inquiries at the archive. And to my astonishment, they were open documents. You could just go and read them, although very few people knew about them. And I guess the ethical dilemma is this, that if Kirby Kutsia had kept within the law, those documents would be in the National Archive and, and they would be restricted and I would not have seen them. But I think there's a deeper ethical discomfort and that's that these were very private conversations between spouses and they were recorded because one of them was a prisoner of the apartheid state. And, and I'm getting to eavesdrop on, on very private moments in a marriage because of that. 
And I guess I am the last person to give a credible ethical defense of that because I'm writing a book about a marriage and I want to read those documents. I mean, that's that's what I'm doing. I use them because they were there, because they were there in an open source. And if I'm writing a book about a marriage and I don't use those, then really I just shouldn't write the book. I mean, that was that was the choice. I mean, the issue was how to use them with grace and sensitivity and 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 respect for for those people and whether i did that is is for others to judge but that's what was weighing on me and and i, and I very much hope that i did i think i think you have managed in this book to to do that sort of perform that delicate task in a way because in the end it does come down to what the reader is going to take away from the book and it does come down to in a way i suppose you know are you able to write it with with sufficient skill and with sufficient insight to justify in a sense what what you're doing i think you have certainly managed to do that um and as i say i'm very glad that um we're able to make winnie and nelson our inaugural news 24 book of the month it's going to be an ongoing project and we hope to to continue with that and thank you very much for speaking to me and for joining this podcast it remains only to say winnie and nelson is published by Jonathan Ball, and will be available in all good bookshops very soon. Thanks so much, Sean. I, that was lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of PageCast. We love hearing from you. So if you'd like to get in touch, please contact us at pagecastpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep reading and listening.